0: I hope I have whetted your appetite for more of God's Word concerning the last days, the latter days, and the second coming of Jesus Christ, Uh, because these, certainly, the days that we're living in, are the last days. One of the amazing things to me is that uh, it isn't just that uh, we take the commentary of the Word of God. But the amazing thing is that there's a great portion of the world looking for the second coming of Christ in the sense of a Messiah who will be taking the false one. You can read that in your newspapers, unfortunately, I wish it were another way, but uh, that the second coming has become a big thing in the world is evident. This is from uh, Newsweek. The movies are on to something big, the end of the world. Never before, though, have the movies been so absorbed with the details of an impending apocalypse. Civilization, according to them, is pulling its own plug and swirling down its own drain. Now, we know, this is Newsweek, as well as they do, that things can't go on much longer as they're going. And the prospect of a climax to the whole human drama has its own deadly fascination. The most downbeat of endings can be thrilling if the beat booms big enough. It doesn't take much to get with the spirit of a copalypse in these days. Even the Metropolitan Museum of Art has gotten into the act now, a 1970 engagement calendar with 40 fantastical paintings of a copalyptic happening. He says then, in his part, he says, my own private 20th century fantasy concerning this apocalypse is this, to see Melvin Laird on the morning of Armageddon still insisting that the ABM will strengthen our hand at the bargaining table. This is Newsweek. These are just, you know, I just, either someone gives them to me or I cut them out. And uh, now listen to this Broadway is being plastered with things on Christ's second coming. But listen a passion play of the second coming called Exercus Ex. The Private Life of Jesus Christ is being presented weekly now at and I'm not going to tell you the name of the church but it is a church in New York City. The church setting is a daring one considering the dramatic personality of this pop passion play. Jesus Christ is a 42nd Street hustler. The Virgin Mary is a tattooed prostitute. Is this a major? This is in a church. St. Joseph is a barker. Others include sadists, a demented, demented transsexual known as Our Lady of 42nd Street, and other freaks and clowns and grifters. There's a lot of simulated perverse sex acts on the very altar of so-and-so, and and it's described as a religious sex horror play, presented by the Dove Theatre Company, which holds a National Endowment for the Arts grant from our government. It has more sexual convictions than religious. Jesus Christ is simply the latest pop hero along the comic book trail in this anything but a miracle play and circus. I think the most embarrassing moment in this passion play of the second coming of Christ was decided when he, as an actor as well as a savior, was, had to recite the entire to be or not to be soliloquy from Hamlet. He says, I went under the pew because it was played by the name of this man, a 22-year-old former altar boy from Haverford, Pennsylvania. Now, this is going on right now. This was in this week's reviews. Here's another one just came to Broadway. And I'm just telling you this to get, you, to get the idea in your mind, people are looking for a Savior. And there is a false one coming. There's a Messiah coming who is going to offer peace to the world. This one is a new play dealing with the second coming of Christ or the final arrival of the Messiah, depending on whether you're Jew or Gentile. It says, I won't read the whole thing. Uh, It has to do with a G.I.'s father, a phony politician, who documents the miracle of birth to his daughter, which is really a daughter who is having a baby out of wedlock, and this baby becomes the Messiah of the world. And that's the story of the play. I won't read you the whole thing. But this is what we're facing. In other words, the whole world, including the secular world, you see, is talking about these things. And uh, for us, it's so blessed and so wonderful to know that Christ is really coming, the true Christ, the real Christ. Remember where Jesus says, and they will say, there is Christ, here is Christ, be not deceived, don't be deceived by this thing. Because people are going to point at different ones and say, There, that's the Christ. And Jesus warns us that I came in my own name and you receive me not. But there will come who will come, there will be one who will come in his name, and him will ye receive. So the world is looking for someone to settle its problems. Someone to undertake for its needs. And as we think of the second coming of Christ, I can't help but think, isn't it blessed to know that we, and I make very careful distinction here, will escape the wrath which is to come. Isn't that wonderful? That's in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, that we're going to escape the wrath which is to come. I say that word, we, advisedly, because I have to be so careful here. For I believe there are a lot of false sectarian groups in the world today that are proclaiming the second coming of Christ, who know nothing about the saviorhood of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ as a cleansing power from sin, the need of conversion, the need of repentance, who understand none of these things, but are talking about a kingdom which is coming, which is going to have a ruler, and that ruler will be like unto Jesus Christ. The one that God promised. I hear people speak about it, but when I ask them, do you know about salvation? What is salvation? There's someone coming who's going to straighten the world out. And that's all they're interested in. Get the world straightened out. And so they're looking for him. But when I say that we, I say it advisedly for I cannot help but believe that those of you who sat under my ministry for months or possibly years, that it would be possible that you would have remained with me unless you came to believe that the blood of Christ cleansed you from all sin. Because I remind you that the The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. But unto those that are lost, it is foolishness. And I can't believe that you'd sit here for years and listen to me if you believe that what I am speaking is foolishness. So I feel in my heart that when you come week after week after week, You have come to that place. I trust that you have come to that place where you really believe on Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that he belongs to you, and that the Holy Spirit that dwells in your breast is the guarantee of your redemption, and that the true Jesus Christ, makes me think of that program, you know, on television, will the true Jesus Christ please stand up? Because we've really got a lot of phonies in the world right now. I forget how many I read recently, are now proclaiming themselves as Christ. There are many throughout the world who are claiming to be the Messiah that should come. But Jesus says no man knows the day or the hour, and it will be as a thief coming in the night. And it is not possible for us to know when Jesus will come, but that we are to know that he's coming soon. Paul says, I am persuaded of better things than you, of you. And I am persuaded of better things than of you, that you really trust him and believe in him with all your heart. Now, let's go back just a minute and review last week's conclusions that we derived from God's word in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And I'm not going to ask you to read it because we came to certain conclusions concerning that word. That in the latter days... There would be a great conflict. Russia would be involved, called the powers of the Northern Confederacy. It's to come in the last week or a period of seven years on the face of the earth, which is called the Great Tribulation. The 70th week of Daniel... Jacob's trouble, it has many names that God has used, but it has to do with that last period of the 70th week of Daniel. I'll speak of that later. 69 weeks have passed. In Daniel nine twenty-seven. It tells us that God has determined that there shall be 70 weeks that will cover all history, 490 years. And it gives us the time up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ when Messiah is cut off. And then there is a period when the Jews are laid on the side, as Paul says in Romans 9 to 11. They've been laid aside that the fullness of the Gentiles might come in. And this is the age of grace. There is this age in between that 69th week, which finished with the crucifixion of Christ, and then the tremendous beginnings of the 70th week when the Antichrist shall be revealed, him who comes after the power of Satan, and all shall see him, but first the church shall be translated. For Thessalonians tells us, 2 Thessalonians 2, tells us that as long as the Holy Spirit is upon the earth, The man of sin cannot be revealed. But when he is taken out of the way, then the man of sin will be revealed. Let me read that to you so that you know. It's 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 9. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth, it means permitteth, who allows, doth already work. Only he who now alloweth will allow until he be taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit is allowing it to go on. The spirit of iniquity is already at work. Then when the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way and the Holy Spirit dwells in our breasts, the only way this Holy Spirit can be taken out of the way is for us to be taken out of the way. And so we are translated into the presence of Jesus Christ, the rapture of the church to be with our Savior. And then, it says, notice, shall that wicked one be revealed, in verse 8, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And so the church shall be taken out of the way first before the man of sin is revealed. You will not be here to see the Antichrist. You will have been translated, taken to be with your Savior. As long as the Holy Spirit is here, it says, as long as he's here, he who alloweth will allow until he's taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked one be revealed. God makes it very clear. As long as you're here, he cannot be in power. That doesn't mean he cannot be alive. The Antichrist, and I could believe this with all my heart right now, may this very moment be on the face of this earth. He may already be in the process of fulfilling this here prophecy of God that the time will come when the church will be taken out and he will be redeemed. And so we're told that in that 70th week of Daniel, an amazing thing happens. In the first three years, a covenant is made by Satan with Israel. Would you turn with me to Daniel, the ninth chapter? Now, may I say this, Revelation has no meaning without Daniel. Daniel is to Revelation what Exodus is to Romans and what Leviticus is to the book of Hebrews. They have no meaning. You cannot separate the Old and the New Testament. The greatest of prophetic books in the Old Testament is the book of Daniel. Jesus refers to the book of Daniel. In Matthew 24, when he speaks to the apostles, he says to them, And when ye see the abomination of desolations, twenty-four fifteen Matthew, When ye see the abomination of desolation, spoke of by Daniel the prophet, Hide yourselves, for the great time of desolation has come upon the face of the earth. So Jesus refers to Daniel as the prophet, who best gives to us the description of how the Antichrist comes into power. Ezekiel has a special dealing with a very small portion of this whole thing, and that has to do with the powers of the Northern Confederacy. Russia. Daniel has to do not only with the powers of the northern confederacy, but he goes to the kings of the south and the kings of the east. Ezekiel has to do with a part of the conflict. And I think here that I should make that very, very clear that there are two areas here that are very important to us. Number one, that the battle of Armageddon that is mentioned in Scripture is not some single battle. It is a campaign. Somehow people have an idea that the battle of Armageddon is something that comes suddenly upon the world. But the word in the Greek is very clear. The word in the Greek is palimos, which means campaign or war. The Vietnam War has lasted for many years. If it was the word battle, meaning a single battle, in the Greek, the battle of Armageddon would have been "mache." which is one battle. But the word is not that. The word is very clear. It's palimos, which means a long campaign. So that from the very beginnings, I'm going to read here in 9.27, of the battle in the 70th week of Daniel, Daniel 9.27, until the very end, it is one whole campaign but the last three and a half years are the great tribulation. Notice what it has to say. Let's start with 924. Well, let me me, me start with 920, all right, because then I can start with all that Daniel has to say. I think that's best. And while I was speaking, this is Daniel, I want you to notice here, Daniel, you know, we all look at him and we consider him to be an example of a man who truly is a godly man, and that if there's ever been a man that really stood fast for the things of God, it's Daniel. But notice how Daniel approaches God. It's tremendous. And while I was speaking, notice, and praying, and what? Confessing my sin. People say, you mean Daniel also? Yeah, Daniel also doesn't matter who it is in Scripture, no matter where you turn, when they're going to be in communion with God, there has to be the number one thing. I hope you never get on your knees with your petitions. You get on your knees first for confession and to pray and then you bring your petitions. Don't you dare get on your knees And go to God and say, now, Lord, uh, Jesus, I love you so much, and I have a lot of things I want to talk to you about today and ask you for. Number one, well, that isn't the way Daniel did it. That's not the way any of the New Testament writers did it. Old Testament writers, notice he said, I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel. And presenting my supplications before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, this thrills me, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. And notice, at the beginning of thy supplication, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee. Now, it's quite amazing here. Angels are not omniscient, you know, nor omnipresent. And it thrills me the way God speaks here, and Daniel speaks. Notice what he says. He says, whom I had seen, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly. He had to travel. God sent him. It's wonderful to know, isn't it? Angels are not omniscient and omnipresent. God sends them. The angels, Hebrew says, are the ministering spirits to the saints. God sends them to you. They don't just wander around and look for people to help. God sends them. Notice what it says? Cause me to what? Fly how fast? Swiftly from where he was to where Daniel was. And it was Gabriel. I think that's wonderful. Gabriel is coming to speak about the coming Antichrist and to show what type man he shall be. And the same Gabriel came to Mary and told Mary that she was going to bring forth a child. And the child's name would be Jesus and he would save his people from their sins. Same Gabriel. And here's Gabriel speaking. And he touched me about the time of the evening oblation, and he informed me, and he talked with me, and he said, Oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplication, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Boy, we could really stay there, couldn't we, huh? You know, thou art greatly beloved. Wouldn't you like to have that commendation from God, huh? Wouldn't you? I am greatly beloved. Imagine to have Gabriel come and tell him this, thou art greatly beloved. Oh, there's one thing I would pray for all of you is that you'd be greatly beloved of God. Greatly beloved of God. I remember Jesus saying, I do always those things that please my Father. You know, if we as older folks, as not as old as me necessarily, but older folks, all right? If we as older folks or younger folks or young folks or children could get this into our heart to please God, we wouldn't have any problems. If we really please God. If a child please God... It would be obedient to its parents. If the parents please God, they would bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If all of us together, as children, as parents, as young folks, please God, then the blessings of God will fall upon them. But I want to tell you this, that if you don't please God, I can assure you of one thing. God will punish you. And I mean that punishment in the sense of chastening. For if God loves you, and this is all I hear now all around, God loves you. The word of God says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every single son. Why? that we might get to this place where an angel of the Lord might be able to say to you, thou art greatly beloved. Oh, to be in that place. Greatly beloved of God. He says, now therefore I'm come to show thee, thou art greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. And you know, it's so difficult sometimes God wants us to understand things, to understand the vision. God wants us to be his beloved ones. But I have to say this, and I'm not talking about the present age, especially of young people, but all oh, that you'd be sincere and no phonies about your Christian faith and stand fast for Jesus Christ. There are no other answers. There are no scientists that have the answers. There are no nations that have the answers. There are no rulers that have the answers. There are none that have the answers to our life and to our destiny except Jesus Christ. Nor that there might be a reality about us, a realness. I believe that when we begin to see parents real and young people real, and when I mean real, I mean real, who've got real intestinal fortitude to live like Christians and allow the Holy Spirit to undertake for them. Who will do what Paul says when he says, stand fast. Don't be movable. And quit yourselves like what? Men. And I want to tell you that he's not only saying that to us as parents or adults, but he's saying that to young men. And he has much to say to young women if young women want to read the scriptures in Timothy and Titus. There's plenty to be said. But oh, that we might be well-pleasing to God. Now notice 24. Here's what he came to tell them. He said, I want you to consider the vision and understand the matter. You're greatly beloved, so God's going to give you a revelation that is tremendous. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. I want to stop there. Number, Number one... Seventy weeks are, what? Determined. Okay? This can never be changed. God has determined it. Seventy weeks of seven years of peace. We know that they're seventy, seven years of peace because it's spoken of in the scripture as a week of years. When, in the Old Testament in Genesis, you remember that uh, it tells us that Jacob loved Rachel and he had to work a week of years, seven years. And then he was deceived and he got Leah for a wife and then he had to work another seven years. The uncle said, Uncle Laban. He so said, have to work another seven years, a week of years. And so there are 70 weeks, 490 years. It's determined by God. And it's upon thy people. It only refers to one people Daniel's people. Daniel's people are the Israelites. Okay? It's determined. It's Israel. Number two. Number three, and upon the holy city. All right? That brings us down to Jerusalem. Okay? In Palestine. So in the first few words, God has placed it all in front of you. It's set can't be changed. Number two, it's Israel. And number three, it's going to involve Jerusalem, because that's finally where the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is going to set up his kingdom. But we also will Antichrist. Antichrist is going to set his throne in Jerusalem, finally, and is going to desecrate the temple, which will be rebuilt. And it's going to build an image which shall be worshipped. And it shall be Satan's power in the last day. The religion of Satan. You hear much about this today, don't you? The religion of Satan. I read the other day, I forget how many there are in the nation now, of Satan churches. Did you read about them? Worshippers of Satan people who believe that they can worship Satan and engage in all sorts of licentious behavior. And they're very frank about it. We worship Satan. That's it. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Notice, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin. To make reconciliation for iniquity. Jesus Christ. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. That will come at the end of the 70th week of Daniel when Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom upon the face of the earth. And to seal up the vision and the prophecy. That's it. No more. And to anoint The most holy one. Ah, that's even Jesus. Seventy weeks. Now notice how the seventy weeks are figured. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. Now this was in the time of Artaxerxes the king. The commandment went forth to rebuild Jerusalem. It's found in Nehemiah, the second chapter. You can read it there at your leisure. It took seven weeks, 49 years. That's history. You can figure it out according to Scripture. Seven weeks it took to rebuild the temple. And as it says here, going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, unto Messiah the Prince well you remember now we're in the Old Testament you know it's glorious isn't it to see them talking about Messiah the Prince who's to come doesn't this thrill you you know I, I get so thrilled when I read these portions and I think like of Isaiah 9 6 and his name shall be called wonderful counselor the mighty God the Prince of Peace for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and his name shall be the mighty god the prince of peace wonderful how glorious isaiah 7:14 unto us a child is born and shall be born what of a virgin Micah 5, 2, And thou, Bethlehem, rephrated, though thou be small among the cities of Israel, out of thee shall the Deliverer come. Two hundred people lived in Bethlehem. Kings don't get born like that in a stable. But that's the way it was with God. Prophesied. This prophecy, incidentally, this prophecy of Daniel is 2,500 years ago. 2,500 years. Speaking of what's to come. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be, what, seven weeks, number one, and threescore and two weeks. Now let me see mathematically, threescore, 62, and seven sixty-nine weeks. Okay? 69 weeks. How many weeks have been determined until Christ comes and establishes his kingdom. Seventy. Right? Seventy weeks have been determined. How many are here? Sixty-nine. One missing. Just one. And it's not mentioned in here. Notice. Three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. And after threescore and two weeks, notice, shall Messiah be cut off. But not for himself. Not for himself, not for his sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Nothing to do with his iniquity, but to do with mankind's iniquity. Messiah shall be cut off. Now, isn't it strange that the Jews cannot see this? They're looking for Messiah. All they have to do is figure out mathematically from Daniel to know that the Messiah that cut off was Christ. Because the scripture laid it down. Seven weeks, 49 years, 62 weeks, and you total the two together, and you have 483 years, and there's seven years left that have not yet come to pass. Because when Messiah was cut off, God's relationship to Israel stopped. And the door was open to the Gentile. Jesus says in John 1, 12, He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him. To them gave he the power, the privilege to be the sons of God. And so Paul tells us in Romans, and that Israel was laid aside. Blindness has come to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then God will deal again with Israel. So you and I are living in the age of grace. We're privileged to live in that age of grace. And God has gloriously saved and redeemed our souls. We're part of the body of Christ, the bride of Jesus. From the very beginnings, God wanted a bride for His Son who should come, the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. And He's taking it out now of Jew and Gentile alike. It matters not. Either one can come to Jesus and find in Him Messiah and Savior of the world, the Redeemer from sin to cleanse us and purify us and make us white in His presence. Pure! For by one offering... Hebrews tells us, He hath made perfect forever them that are saved. And so Messiah was cut off. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. Notice that. And the people of the prince, right after that, not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come. Now, the prince didn't come at this time. This is talking of Antichrist. The prince And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And what happened in 70 AD? The Romans under Titus poured down like a flood into Jerusalem and Palestine. And the blood ran up to the bridles of the horses. And they pillaged and killed a million Jews. And tore down every tree and every building according to secular history and left Israel completely barren. And it's been barren from that time till this when God is once more beginning to deal with his people Israel. I will call you out of the lands of the east, Jeremiah says, and the west and the north and the south, and I will bring you back into the places that were made waste, and I will establish you as a nation again. Golda Meir struck me yesterday when she was speaking. I don't know, you know, since, uh, you know Golda Meir, don't you? I admire Golda Meir, all right, she's the prime minister minister of Israel. She struck me with what she said. Here's the statement. They said, what do you think of the 15-year friendship treaty between Russia and Egypt? And she said, "Uh, it's nothing new. I expected it. She said, the only thing that bothers me is this. I am very jealous. Because she said, those who are our enemies now receive all the arms they want to fight us and nobody, nobody is running to help us. I'd like to tell Golda Meir a little bit about what's going to happen. They're not going to need any help because God's going to win the whole thing. They're not going to need one instrument of warfare because the Lord Himself is going to settle the whole thing in His good time when it tells us in Revelation that by the sword of the fire of His mouth He will slay all the nations that come before Israel and that the armies will be the armies of heaven and not the armies of earth that are going to win the battle. And all the armies of earth will suffer destruction. And God will end all wars. And there'll be no more wars. And neither will men learn war anymore. No West Point. Feel sorry for President Nixon, he was up there yesterday. No more speeches. no more telling folks and they've been telling him graduating from west point from the very beginning every class that's spoken to the president usually says something like this and i can assure you that it probably will not be that any of you will have to go to war because it looks like we now have reached the point of peace how i've lived long enough to see this happen about four times i think where they said this is the war to end all wars you remember I won't ask you to raise your hand about how many remember World War I, but I do. And World War II, the war to end all wars. Every time there's a war, it's to end all wars. But Jesus says there'll be wars and rumors of wars until the very end. Now notice what it says about this prince that shall come. It says the people of the prince shall come, shall destroy the city. And Jerusalem was destroyed... Absolutely. This was... Imagine... Hundreds of years before this happened to Jerusalem. This was prophesied of. The city completely destroyed. Now notice. And he... This one who is the prince who shall come. This one who is the Antichrist. This one who will set himself up as God that I'll be speaking about. And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, seven years. And in the middle of that week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. The, the temple's been rebuilt. Jerusalem has been rebuilt. It's, Israel is back in the land. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. Because why? He takes the temple and he sets his own image up in it to be worshipped as God. And Jesus says in Matthew twenty four fifteen, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, he's talking to the Jews. Remember, when that abomination takes place, And when this man, this prince who is coming, sets up that desolation, that abomination in my temple, and says, I am not God, and he is the crown prince, he is the Messiah, that's the beginning of the end. That's it. Notice what it says. He will break the covenant. He'll cause it to cease in the middle of the week, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. Now, beloved, in view of what's coming, and that's just part of it, that only has to do with the 70th, 70 weeks of Daniel and the 70th week and the time of great tribulation which is to come. Now, last week we spoke of Russia. Russia going and finding Israel in peace. It says, living in unwalled villages, and all the people are at peace. Russia defeats Israel in the midst of the 70th week of Daniel, because at the last three and a half years, all hell breaks loose on Israel and on all the earth. And from Revelation 6 to 18, all the terrible judgments fall of hailstones that are equal to 120 pounds apiece of locusts that come in such droves that they eat everything. That's what's coming. But it says when Israel dwells at peace, the powers of the northern confederacies come down and descend upon them. So it has to be in the first three and a half years. We've been taken out. And then Russia pours in and God ends Russia. But the prince that shall come is already in operation and he is establishing for himself an empire. And that empire is the revived Roman Empire. And it's going to consist, I will show you, of ten kings. And Satan shall be practically incarnate in the very body of the Antichrist, the political leader who will step in after Russia is defeated by God, he will by default become the ruler of the world. Revelation says, who can make war with him now? Russia's dead on the fields of battle. God has sent a fire on Magog on the land of Russia. There's only one-sixth of the people left in Russia. She's useless and defenseless. And then God, looking down, sees Antichrist come into his great sway of power and he comes and defiles a temple three and a half years have passed. He sees Russia gone. That would have been his greatest enemy. The kings of the east are going to be another one. But he sees him defeated and done and so by default he becomes the great leader of the revived Roman Empire. The beast that had a wound that was slain and the wound is healed. And it's the Roman Empire that died and the Roman Empire that's now come to life again. For Satan has no power to create life in a man or resurrection power to raise a man from the dead. If Satan has resurrection power, then we are in serious trouble. Only Christ has resurrection power. We will only be raised by the Spirit of God. That's all. What a desolation is coming. It's hard to conceive of. this a tremendous conflict going on in the universe between Satan and God. It's been going on all down through the centuries. It is coming up to one great culmination, and there's going to be a revived Roman Empire. Let me read you something to close off. Huh? You're going to be... You know, when I read this, this is this week's newspaper. Let me read you this. Word of Britain's coming entry into Europe's common market has been received here in the United States. This is by Joseph Kraft, syndicated columnist, and it's titled New Europe to Cast a Long Shadow. It's created a mood of ho-hum and so what, but the present American unreaction is surely going to turn out to have been supremely raw. This community, which will now include Britain, and Britain is going to bring in Denmark, Norway, and Ireland, will be called the European Ten. Britain was in the Roman Empire. You realize that, I hope. The European Ten. Of that ten, two of the world's five nuclear powers will be in it. Two of the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council. Two of the big four powers charged with responsibility for Berlin and the Near East. Inevitably, their economic union will have great political consequences and they are apt to be consequences radically at odds with American policy. The European 10, for instance, is almost sure to want to think it thickens still more its rich diet of connections with Eastern Europe and with the Near East and the oil they possess. What all this means is that British entry to the community was not all that so much oversold by its early proponents. A new Europe is coming to pass, and it is an event that is casting a long political shadow. And unless American policy stays abreast of the rapidly developing trends, the United States will find itself isolated from the world. Community. Beloved, there's a day coming soon. It's not far off. When that revived Roman Empire that Daniel tells us in Daniel 7 is composed of ten kings, that Revelation 13 tells us is composed of ten kings, that revived Roman Empire under Antichrist is coming into being very, very nicely. And I hardly think that there's anyone on the streets that knows anything about it. And yet, the signs are all there. You can discern the season. Cannot ye discern the signs of the times? Let us pray. Now, Father, we thank Thee for Thy blessed word this morning. Lord, this has been teaching, but we ought to teach. We remember that Jesus said to Peter, Peter, lovest thou me? Peter said, yea, Lord, I love thee. And he said, teach. Teach my sheep. And Lord, we pray that that teaching will be real feeding. Feeding the sheep. We remember that As Peter was told to feed the sheep, this was the beginning. That as Jesus arose, he said, Go ye into all the nations and teach them. That as he ascended from the earth, he had only one word for his disciples. And when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses. Witnesses of what, Lord? Witnesses of what my word has to say to mankind. Father, we pray that we may drink it in. Lord, impress every heart with the closeness of the coming of Christ. If there's any generation that God has ever spoken to to tell them to watch the signs of the times, it's this one. Israel is in the land. Russia has come into great power. The kings of the east who have been laid aside for thousands of years are coming into great power. The kings of the south that is spoken of are coming into power. All around us we see the signs of the coming of Jesus. And Lord, we would pray that in this congregation, whether it be young or old, no one, no one, Lord, would leave without Jesus in their hearts. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.